podcast is brought to you by Nova Southeastern University's Fischler School of Education and Human Services. The Fischler School has the largest graduate school of education at an accredited university, serving more than 14,000 students each academic year in some 55 cities across the United States, plus approximately 40 other countries. Hello, this is Dr. Marilyn Gardner with the United States Distance Learning Association, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast entitled Good, Better, Best, The Ethical Dimensions of Distance Learning. And I'm thrilled today to have two distance learning practitioners, Dr. Melody Thompson and also Lana Kearns. Thank you for joining me. Very Glad happy to be here. here. Dr. Melody Thompson is assistant professor of education in the adult education program at Penn State. In that role she teaches and advises masters and doctoral students with much of her teaching being done online through the Penn State World Campus. That must be exciting. It is. Her primary research interests are the ethical dimensions of online learning and diversity issues in adult education, especially those related to religious identity. Dr. Thompson's past positions include Director of Planning and Research for the World Campus and Director of the American Center for the Study of Distance Education. Dr. Thompson has lectured nationally and internationally on topics related to adult and distance education. She is also the author of many articles and book chapters as well as co-author of the McGraw-Hill Handbook of Distance Learning. Very impressive. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Thompson. It's definitely my pleasure. Lorna Kearns is an Instructional Design Research Assistant at the Center for Instructional Development and Distance Education at the University of Pittsburgh and Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Heinz College at Carnegie Mellon University. She holds a Master's of Science in Information Science from the University of Pittsburgh and she is currently working on her PhD in Adult Education at the Pennsylvania State University. Her research interests include instructional design for online learning, collaboration among distance students, and ethical issues in distance learning. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lorna. Glad to be here. I have a lot of questions, and I know this is a topic, a burning topic, for many of us in distance education. My first question is, perhaps the most fundamental of questions, is why is it important yet difficult to talk about ethical dilemmas in distance learning? Well, it's important because decisions involving the welfare of individuals or groups always have ethical dimensions. For example, questions about who, what, and how we teach and about what constitutes responsible behavior by instructors, learners, and researchers are ethical questions. Three overarching questions related to any educational activity are who wins, who loses, and who decides. Our answers in our distance learning practice reflect social relationships and power hierarchies that have moral and ethical dimensions. Negotiating these relationships and answering these questions in ways that help distance learning become stronger and better means that we need ethical awareness and response. Talking about ethical decision-making in action can be difficult for several reasons. Our own review of the literature suggests that many of the issues have ethical dimensions 
but are not recognized as such by practitioners. And even in cases where people say they do see ethical issues related to their practice, they don't offer a reasoned moral basis for their actions. They might say, this is the right thing to do, but not be able to say what values or priorities make it right. Another difficulty is that very few people have made any formal study of ethics and ethical decision making. Also, there seems to be a widespread feeling that it's wrong, perhaps even unethical, to talk about the moral basis for decision making, that articulating a moral basis for action is tantamount to moralizing or telling others what to do. Similarly, although codes of ethics are a feature of several professions, many educational professionals fear that a code of ethics would limit their personal autonomy or academic freedom. And finally, the environments in which we practice are very complex. The forces and demands that operate on practitioners are often conflicting and difficult to negotiate, and that makes it hard to recognize, discuss, and respond to ethical dilemmas. Those were really excellent points. I guess my next question would be, what general principles actually guide your thinking about the ethical dimensions of distance learning? Well, the first one is that the teaching learning process is not primarily based on technical skills or knowledge. It's a complex, value-laden activity. Distance learning is less often about doing things right and more often about doing the right thing. Second, many of the decisions we make as teachers, learners, or institutions are neither neutral nor disinterested. We make them because we believe they represent right as opposed to wrong, better as opposed to worse action. Third, we are not proposing a universalist approach, what everyone should do in a particular situation. Because our practice contexts are so complex, and because individual and corporate values and missions vary so widely, it would be very inappropriate to suggest a single right approach to many, if not most, ethical situations. On the other hand, that's not to say that consistency has no place in ethical decisions related to distance learning. We do need to avoid an anything-goes moral relativism or situational ethics that suggests no need for consistency. Finally, the hard work to be done is that we, as individuals, must develop and express a moral persona that reflects our own personal worldview and educational philosophy. That's what Liz Burge has called our ethical fitness. What are the main categories of ethical issues related to distance education? Well, as a starting point for thinking about possible areas where ethical questions in distance learning might arise, we could think about four different groups of people who have ethical responsibilities. Students, instructors, and this would also include instructional designers, researchers of distance learning, and institutions that offer distance learning programs. Could you actually, Lorna, give us some examples of issues related to students, to instructors, to researchers, and to institutions? Well, let me start with students. One area that gets a lot of attention in, in that category is academic dishonesty. In fact, it's probably the most frequently cited ethical problem in the context of distance learning. But that's not to say that academic dishonesty is more prevalent in distance learning than other forms of higher ed. But a study by Kennedy and others found that both college students and faculty believed that cheating was easier in distance learning classes. Another study found that while 68% of college students that were surveyed reported cheating, 
only 8% said that they used the internet to do so. And another shows that rates of cheating in college have changed very little in the last 20 years. So regardless of how prevalent it is in reality, it's because the perception exists in people's mind, it's an issue that requires special attention. Identity misrepresentation is a special case of academic dishonesty. This is when someone other than the student registered for the course submits required work. There's actually not a lot of research on this for distance learning, although you do see it studied in areas like online dating. So if I switch over to the instructor category, one issue is the choice of technology for learning activities. Sometimes choices are overly influenced by what's available or what is new rather than driven by learning objectives. Another issue is instructional parity with resident students. Online programs are often marketed as being equal to resident programs. If online students receive the same degree as campus students, the implication then is that the learning outcomes for each should be the same. Back to the heightened perception about the potential for academic dishonesty, the creation of assessments bears special attention. If academic integrity is an issue, the design of assessments should reflect this heightened awareness. Assessments can include online quizzes, proctored exams, group projects, portfolio-based assessments, and some may be better than others at promoting academic integrity. Another issue for instructors is the use of plagiarism detection tools like Turnitin. And because Turnitin retains student papers submitted for review, instructors who use the service have to address the issue of student privacy and intellectual property rights. Of course, designing for diversity is also an issue. We know that online learning increases opportunities for students in one country to take courses offered by institutions in another. Some research shows that such students experience cultural discontinuities. Students with disabilities are another population. One study on distance learning courses for disabled high school students concluded that while basic needs were being met in the sample under investigation, further efforts in that area were still required. Then there's the surveillance issue in online courses. Instructors who use course management systems take for granted that statistics will be collected on students' usage, but students may not be aware of it. Copyright compliance is an issue that has particular relevance for online instructors because all their material must be posted on the web. Many instructors, even if they want to comply correctly with copyright policy, don't know how to interpret it. And a final issue for instructors, believe it or not, is identity misrepresentation. There have been cases reported in the literature of instructors creating fake students. An assistant professor in electrical engineering, for example, created a fictitious online student named Bill Reed to gather information from her students that would be difficult to collect otherwise. Another group of instructors created a mythical student named Jane to help promote the development of community among online students. In spite of the ethical questions involved here, these researchers thought that conducting such an experiment was a worthwhile research endeavor. There are also issues for researchers studying online learning. Kanuka and Anderson make the case that 
The unique features of online learning contribute to the complexities involved in this kind of research. For example, they point out the difficulties in obtaining signed, authenticated consent from geographically distributed online students. And there are risks to online students that need to be considered when those students are research participants. Although the researchers who created the fictitious student Jane used her to promote community development with their classes, they also created her to conduct research. So this is an example of researchers exploiting a particular vulnerability of online student populations. There are also ethical challenges in online discussion transcript analysis. Even though most online discussion is situated within a password-protected course management system, a review of the literature by Kanuka and Anderson found that no clear consensus existed about who owns messages posted in an online learning discussion board. But we all know that if we wanted to tape record a face-to-face -face class, we'd need permission to do so. I think a final point to keep in mind on the issue of research is that now with the move towards using Web 2.0 technologies in online learning, the privacy afforded by the course management system will disappear. In that last category of institutional responsibility, one of the issues is access, and that's always been a fundamental goal in the history of distance learning. Earlier generations of distance learning often made use of technologies accessible to everyone. But today, reliance on the computer and internet technology creates barriers for some. Another issue is student support services. Campus-based programs provide services to students like writing assistance, math tutoring, skills workshop, personal counseling. This issue is related to the concept of instructional parity, but the focus here is on the parity of services instead of instruction. The use of adjunct instructors is another issue. Universities are increasingly using adjuncts. To some, this poses a threat to full-time tenured faculty. Others are concerned about fair treatment of adjuncts. Regardless of your perspective, the potential exists for the university to benefit at the expense of the faculty. What makes the issue particularly relevant to distance learning is that institutions determined to offer distance learning programs are happy to employ adjuncts to teach in those programs if tenured faculty resist. Many of these adjuncts are distant from the schools in which they teach, and I wonder if their distance and distribution makes them less legitimate members of the institutional community and how that might impact the community as a whole. A final issue for institutions is policy development. Copyright policy is especially important in online learning because of the reliance on web-based materials, as I said before. Even though most institutions have policies about copyright violation, there are far fewer with clear-cut guidelines for interpreting the TEACH Act and the Fair Use Policy. And while most institutions probably have an academic integrity policy already in place that encompasses both face-to-face -face and distance learning, it may be less likely that an intellectual property policy exists to guide faculty in asserting ownership rights over online course materials they develop. Likewise, while institutions have guidelines in place regarding faculty teaching loads for traditional classes, it's less likely that they'll have fleshed out policies on how to compensate faculty for converting face-to-face -face classes to online classes. 
So these are just some of the issues, and I know I've covered a lot, that raise ethical questions, but it's by no means all of them. Lorna, that was an outstanding overview of the issues that raise ethical questions. My next question actually is, earlier you suggested, Dr. Thompson, that as individuals we need to develop a moral persona or ethical fitness based in our values and worldview. How does one go about developing this moral competence? Well, there are three basic elements that are actually very easy to name, but of course are difficult to implement. The first is exploring the different approaches that provide a reasoned basis for ethical action. And I'll go over some of those in a minute. The next is adopting and implementing one of those approaches that best expresses our personal worldview and values. And then third, living our ethical standards mindfully and consistently. That is, in a way that reflects an integration of our values and behavior, showing that we possess external and internal integrity or wholeness. In terms of exploring different approaches to ethical decision making, for thousands of years philosophers have been debating the best approach to the development of ethical standards and behavior. Five common approaches are the utilitarian approach, the rights approach, the fairness or justice approach, the common good approach, and the virtue approach. The utilitarian approach seeks the greatest balance of good over harm. It deals with the consequences or the ends of our actions and tends to privilege the good of many over the good of the individual. The rights approach involves determining what best protects and respects the moral rights of all stakeholders based on the idea that just by being human, each of us has rights that entitle us to be treated with dignity. The fairness or justice approach focuses on equal treatment of everyone involved, or if for some reason some people are treated unequally, this is based on defensible standards. The common good perspective sees the development of groups or communities where all are respected and supported as the highest priority. It assumes that strong communities are themselves good ends and ethical behavior is that which strengthens the community. Finally, the virtue approach focuses on developing ideal human virtues. The emphasis is on what people should be, not what they should do. I mentioned earlier that one of the basic steps is consistency in ethical practice. Consistency is the absence of contradictions. However, we're often faced with contradictions when we think about acting ethically. Some of the sources or the forms of ethical contradictions include, for example, my moral standards might be inconsistent with each other. For example, I might have as a standard loyalty to my employer and also honesty. Someday I might find myself in a situation where my employer asks me to do something dishonest. I can choose one of those standards for behavior or the other, but I cannot choose both, and that's an inconsistent situation. Or I might apply my moral standards inconsistently in different situations or with different groups. For example, I might think it's important to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I might do that with colleagues and not do the same for students. My professed standards might be inconsistent with my behavior. For example, I might say that I value authenticity, but then not share my true thoughts or feelings in meetings or in online discussions. And finally, my internal impulses or desires might themselves be in conflict with each other. 
For example, I might think it's important to stand up for what I believe is right, but I also might want to avoid the unpleasantness that will result from a situation like that. Consistency then is a necessary, but it's not a sufficient component of an individual's ethical behavior. You mentioned five approaches to ethical action. Could you take one of those, say the virtue approach, and how it would be applied in the distance learning environment? A distance learning practitioner whose name is Dennis Howie is an instructor at the University of Alberta in Canada. And he's built on the work of other ethicists in examining the relationships and responsibilities of distance learning instructors, learners, and institutions. And I find his framework is really useful in answering this question. He identifies three necessary elements or virtues that should be expressed in distance learning programs. The first is responsibility or openness to others. And this reflects an ethic of caring through relationships and a primary focus on responsibility to others, not to rules. Second is authenticity, which means being genuine with values expressed in actions and through the development of genuine relationships. The third virtue is presence, being open to others through dialogue and being open to personal change. Within this framework, the ethical responsibilities of students are to go beyond mere self-interest as consumers of education, to recognize their responsibility to their peers, to the instructor, and to themselves, to participate authentically in support of a learning community through sharing and feedback, and to be present to other participants in affirming, critical, and enabling ways. Now, in this sense, critical, of course, is not negative, but it means taking an analytical probing approach to taking for granted assumptions that people might have. The ethical responsibilities of instructors include being professionally prepared, understanding the ethical dimensions of the teaching learning context, having a unified ethical approach to students' cognitive and affective dimensions, clear communication of participation expectations, and even more importantly, support for meeting those expectations, and being present in affirming, critical, and enabling ways in the same way that the students are responsible. And finally, the ethical responsibilities of institutions are to provide appropriate collegial support for part-time instructors, to provide technical support for students and faculty, and to model through institutional conduct and caring, responsibility, authenticity, and presence. Melody and Lorna, you are so impressively knowledgeable about this topic. How did you ever get interested in this topic? Well, I'd first like to say that I'm not all that knowledgeable about it. I've barely scratched the surface in investigating some of these approaches and even the dilemmas that people face. And, and Lorna is more knowledgeable than I at this point about the actual practical in the trenches dilemmas. But I think what sparked my interest originally was seeing so much of the best practices phenomenon. People were saying, here is a best practice, whether it's in online learning student support, whether it's in faculty support, whether it's in course design. And I started thinking about what it means to have a best practice. Saying it's best is very prescriptive. And it's saying that it's better than something else. It's not a bad way to do things. It's the best way to do things. And I noticed that there was very little research to support something being the best. 
What it really meant is it worked for me in my practice context. So I wanted to think about these issues a little bit more deeply. One of the examples that we gave in our presentation today was the idea that it's a dilemma whether a, a designer or a faculty member should design for diverse populations. That seems like a no-brainer. Everybody says, of course you should do that. But if you start thinking from the perspective of some of these different approaches, the common good, for example, or the utilitarian, try to minimize the good for the most and, and the harm to the least, then you start getting into conflicting needs and conflicting approaches. For example, an institution has limited resources. How does an institution decide whether it is right to spend a lot of resources to serve a small number of students when that might mean they need to take away resources from a larger number of students? So all of a sudden, what seems like a no-brainer becomes an ethical dilemma. And it needs to be supported, the, the choice that's made needs to be supported in a mindful, reasonable, rational way. So that's how my interest got started. Just in, I was actually the editor for a database of best practices in the area of faculty satisfaction. And my discomfort over time with that concept led me to look more deeply and uh, go beyond best practices to the ethical dimensions. You obviously have a passion for the topic, <laughs> I can tell. Well, Melody pulled me into this topic, and I, I love combing through the literature. And so when I began to find examples of one thing, it just led me to scratch a bit further and find examples of others. And like I said, even though I had so many to present, there are many, many more as well. And some of these areas are very under-researched. As a PhD student struggling with my own dissertation topic, that's always an area that uh, catches my interest. I guess my final question is, do you have any final comments about your topic? Well, I think it's very important to emphasize that our comments today represent only a very superficial overview and discussion of the, the ethical dimensions of distance learning. We all want stronger and better distance learning programs. And one important step in reaching this goal is to understand how our decisions and practice interact with the decisions of students, institutional administrators, and other stakeholders. Emphasizing the ethical dimensions of these decisions and actions and engaging in dialogue about them will make all of us stronger and better distance learning participants. Lorna and Melody, you have been excellent. I know there will be people in the audience who would like to get in touch with you. Could you, would you mind sharing your contact information? Not at all. Would you like me to give that to you as mail address? Uh, Whatever you email? feel comfortable with. Okay. Well, the easiest way, because I teach online, I'm not often in the physical office. I teach at home in my recliner a lot of the time. And so probably email is the best way to contact me. And my email address is mmt2 at psu. .edu. Thank you. Email is also best for me. My email address is lrkearns at pitt.edu. 
Thank you once again for sharing your expertise and thoughts and comments. It's very much appreciated. This is Dr. Marilyn Gardner from the United States Distance Learning Association. And if you would like more information about the association, you can find us at www.usdla.org. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Nova Southeastern University's Fischler School of Education and Human Services. The Fischler School has the largest graduate school of education at an accredited university, serving more than 14,000 students each academic year in some 55 cities across the United States, plus approximately 40 other countries. The Fischler School of Education and Human Services is dedicated to the enhancement and continuing support of teachers, administrators, trainers, and others working in related helping professions throughout the world.